everyone. I this is Ben Barron. Greetings, Internet. I'm Jay Goldberg. Hope everybody is doing well. Um, so today we wanted to talk about the data center. Uh, earlier in our show's series, we talked about uh, AI and some of the AI-specific stuff happening in, in the data center. But there's obviously a lot of conversations around what the hyperscalers are doing right now. Um, not just around LLMs, but there's a whole conversation around, uh, you know, GPU growth, CPU opportunities, accelerator growth, FPGAs, other types of uh, of ASICs. And we've mentioned we've mentioned this before the the statistic that Jay doesn't love exactly. The semi content will grow three x in uh, in five years. But but the bottom line is we're all pretty sure that the amount of dollars being spent in semis for data center will continue. And I think it's an undisputed point that in terms of semi-content, uh, it's probably going to be one of the most profitable markets. Would you agree? For some people, absolutely. I mean, in general. So in terms of content, right? Content per phone is small. Content per car. I think server content, data center content is probably the highest market for semis was, was my point. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a it's a huge market, and it tends to have very high margin products attached to it. Right, which which is why so many people are chasing it. Yet it's also relatively fixed numbers. You know, like we sort of know how many CPUs go into that market. You made a point about GPUs, which we'll get into, and I think that's an interesting conversation. Other components, but it, it's a fixed size volume-wise, but not necessarily fixed revenue, right? There's value. But one one of the things that I've sort of made this point um, in, 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 in our analysis with, with some of these market se- segments is there are going to be, I, this is at least the way I look at it, and then I'll let you launch into uh, your, your overview, and we could talk through a, a post that you have, which I'll, I'll link to in some show notes. Um, there's going to be areas of semi- that are commoditized workloads in the data center. And then there'll be areas where there are high value workloads. And it's not that I'm saying don't chase all of those, but I think understanding where the more profitable or more valuable workloads will be for a customer exist, because to a degree, right, that that impacts your pricing, that impacts your positioning, your value proposition for, for whatever. But I kind of look at those two things. There's commodity workloads and then there's really valuable workloads and sort of understanding the economics of how you're playing from a platform standpoint helps a little bit look at the 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 role of those chips in certain workloads. Can, can you flesh that out? Like, how do you mean? Like, what's a low value workload? So, uh, I, well, up to six months ago, I would have said something simple like just run a, reg, a, a, a web query for, um, you know, for like an e-commerce transaction, right? Something that, yes, you're making money, but it's not a lot of compute. And it's it's something that could be done with an accelerator. Um, you know, inference was initially talked about this. I think inference is now growing in, um, but, but a lot of people thought, well, if all you're doing is just holding some cash and running some queries, that's not a massive, uh, you know, work. Whereas the high value workloads would be things like training, Sort of that core compute where you had to have some more some more beef either at a CPU GPU level 
even memory now, as you look at HBM, um, you know, that's going to play a part of some of those high value workloads, but there's other areas. If it's just like, like, like power management, right. Or something, it, it may vary for different Gregs, but, but my point was like, when you're assessing, I'm going to run whatever it's a commerce site, or I'm going to run a, a data center, you know, from a perspective of this is software for machine learning or whatever, some of that stuff's just going to cost more than others. And I think some of those workloads can be associated to value. Yeah, I, I suppose I think about it a little bit differently because value in, in, value makes people think about dollars. And I think, you know, yes, like a Google search is cost them a tiny, tiny, tiny amount right. of money. But because they're doing so many of them, it, it, it aggregates a lot. So I think right. what, the way I tend to look at it is, how how compute intensive is the workload? Like how much CPU power has to take place, which is small for, a, a, like you said, a web query or a search. But uh, you know other applications are, you know, much bigger demands. So it's intensity of compute versus how parallelizable that workload is. Yes, and and I think that's that's kind of the dynamic that's playing out in sort of data center calculations. Because if you can do, if you can break something into a very paralyzable task, then you can spread it out across very cheap compute. And I, right. I, you know, we're we're going to talk about AI. It's going to come into this. That's that's really the big advance with these LLMs. In the last six months is to the extent to which they have really broken up the queries in, in or the, right. the the models into very very parallel processes, yeah. which has big implications on the economics of it all. Yeah, and 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 that's where, I mean, you you make the good point about you know when you look at your workload, you can diversify that across a spectrum of products. That's essentially your call it your solution, um, but at the end of the day, and I and you're right, I I sort of came at this from the approach of of dollars. There will certainly just be things that cost more than others, and that vendors can charge more for others because it either has more compute or potentially solves a more expensive problem um, for said company trying to solve a specific problem at a hyperscaler level. I, yeah, I, I think, again, value gets a little confusing because you, some of these tasks you're, you're going to want to run on a very expensive CPU just because of how many you're doing or very expensive GPU because of the volume, even if each individual workload is fairly small because you want to cram in as much as possible. I think it's, but I think we're onto something here where we're talking about data center. You have to sort of break it down into the individual workloads that the hyperscalers in particular are doing. Right. Because that has a big impact on the silicon that they can use. Right. Again, so, right. So, web, web queries are really simple. Anybody can go after those. That's typically when you're, if you're a lot of the new entrants into the CPU market, we're going after those web queries, very simple stuff. Right. The more complicated database analytics stuff had to be done on on Xeon or now AMD, yeah, because they they were much more compute intensive. Yeah, both are good yeah. markets. Both both at and the, the reason I don't want to talk about I don't, I don't like value is because uh, that term sort of implies that it's a cheaper chip and it's not necessarily a cheaper chip. It's actually it could be a very expensive chip for either side of that. Right. But the the workloads are different. So when when, when you think about when you think about the overall sort of growth 
growth market here. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically about this, this post that you wrote earlier in the month on, on data center math. Um, obviously part of this was, I think you were, you were sort of making the point about, you know, how do new entrants enter this market and, and does the math make sense? And, and I think that that sort of point, um, point was clear, but you, you looked at some of the increase and, and, and I do think some of these emerging workflows, again, if this, if, the, if this was six months ago and we were talking data center, we knew AI was there, but it was a whole different conversation. We were still largely talking about web queries, e-commerce, parts of the stack that were relatively defined and, and mature. Now that kind of AI has come into this, it's it's added a whole dimension of compute where I think the hyperscalers are starting to ask additional questions, which is, okay, do, do we have enough compute? Um, you know, one of the interesting things about NVIDIA's uh, H100s from the A100s is that even though they're a little bit more expensive, um, some some reports had estimated they could save you roughly 40, 44 to 45% of time in training. So while you're spending more money, you're spending less time training. And so you, the the equation of value there uh, is, you know, maybe you don't need as many, hence why they're more expensive, but it's going to save you time, right? And so there was a, a cost equation that goes into that from a time-saving standpoint. That's right. Yeah. There's the, I mean, all, all of this comes down to cost equations with, you know, wor workload wor workload per, per core, workload per chip, yeah. times dollars per chip. Yeah. Well, and the, the analysis that I've I've seen and I always thought was really good, not one that we've done, but I saw I've seen from others that's that's been shared with us and presentations from those in the dentist data center is essentially trying to do, and again, this was pre-open AI and LLMs, but a trying to associate dollar value per rack. So you had one rack, how much did you spend on that one rack? And then what was your value from that? And to some degree that came down to a could I draw less power so that I'm saving money? on on overall um uh fees when it comes to electricity but that factored into their you know dollar value per per rack which i thought was interesting a lot of this now again brings up very interesting questions around how much more compute is happening how process and, and compute intense those are thus probably going to draw more energy it's it's still very early but 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 that cost per rack or or cost per Per server, I think is a good a good way to look at, it, especially when you're looking at your workloads and you know your workloads. Right. Yeah, that's that makes sense. Um, so when you looked at sort of the overall overall sort of this, right? You 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 approached a, a, a sort of this, I'll lob it out and I'll let you approach. You know, just outline how you approached this uh, the market growth because I thought it was good. There's there was good math in here. You broke it down to a couple specific areas. Um, but tried to look at, at at what the percentage of that of that upside in the growth market from a revenue standpoint would be across GPUs, CPUs, ASICs, um, and FPGAs is what I think you you narrowed yeah. it in on. Yeah, so that that was the sort of I'm just trying to think through this because the question comes up a lot is like how how big is the data center silicon market and how, how, how does it increasingly the, the question is going to be how does that change with heterogeneous compute right because yeah. five years ago data center meant cpu and now right. everything it's it's much more mixed and so that has important 
implications for the market. I mean, I originally started thinking about this when we were talking about Intel, right? Because the thesis is Intel's working really, really hard to catch up on manufacturing process. But once they do that, then they have to contend with the fact that their CPU market is maybe not shrinking, but certainly the share of wallet and data center spend, yeah. it is it is shrinking because you're seeing a lot more GPU, which is something that Intel doesn't do great at. There's more accelerator. There's more all this other stuff that has to go in there. And so I tried to think through how does that play out? And I, I like, yeah, I broke it down to those categories. And oh, I also have networking, right? So CPU, GPU, FPGA, yeah. networking, yeah. AI accelerator, ASICs. And I just, you know, I said, you know, and, and, and I just set, I set up the formulas. I said, everything else is going to grow and the plug will be CPU. Whatever's left over is CPU. Right. And it doesn't take very aggressive math. You know, GPUs are going to increase. I think we can all agree that accelerators are going to increase. Other stuff, FPGA, networking, that's going to be kind of constant. You, you do that math and CPU comes down pretty hard, right? It comes down to, you know, 30-ish percent of wallet. And so... For the CPU market, that likely means flat, you know, just can be flat, right? Unless unless we see huge, huge growth in data center. But, you know, it's it's already growing a lot. And to say, oh, it has to grow 30% a year for the next five years, that's yeah. the only way to really get data center to CPU to grow. So, and then, and then you know, GPU and, and ASIC grow a lot. And... I, th I think that's the right way to think about it as the, the hyperscalers in particular, and they're 50, 60% of the market are thinking through their calculations, going through the same thing. And like, they're trying to figure out how much CapEx can they spend to, to meet their workload needs. And I think that, I think they're going to come up with something very similar to this. I think that's how spend is going to break down a lot more GPU and a lot more accelerator. Yeah, I think, and I think you're seeing, just at least right now, it's it's weird in you know in AI, and I always make this point like how fast this market's moving. Yes, it's getting more optimized, but like everything could change in in six months. It, it, where we're at in six months could require even more compute than today, or it might require less. We don't know. Like it's just such a fluid situation that I think is is interesting because you do see these optimizations. And then even with the, um, you know, some of the, the announcements that Amazon made around their strategy for LMMs, they're clearly trying to democratize and optimize. But again, is that going to be what works? Is it going to be the open AI Google approach, which is really expensive to train? I mean, I've, I've seen numbers, I'm sure you've seen it too, right? In terms of just how much, how much it costs to train some of these models anywhere from multiple hundreds of millions to to low billions like that's a lot that's a lot of money and i think the challenge is really it's so fluid where are we going to be in six months like i said it, it could require we, we might be way off in terms of the number of gpus or maybe not i don't know yeah i mean a, a couple things came out from when i was researching that piece was one intel despite all its problems that we've talked about so much and is obviously in the news a lot Intel still has a pretty healthy share of data center silicon. Yeah. And and I think that's a function of these are big numbers. Companies are going to move deliberately. And so, you know, two or three years ago when Intel was looking a little more stable, they got purchase orders that, you know, last until today. And that's that stickiness has helped them hang on. We know it's declining. It will continue to decline. But they're still there in a pretty sizable 
shape because this market is is very unlikely that well I shouldn't say that it it doesn't it hasn't traditionally moved really really rapidly. Right? Now that being said, AI LLMs are clearly making everybody incredibly anxious, and that is very likely to spur everybody to move a little bit more quickly, and so that's going to bring about more rapid shift in this in this uh, outlook. The the other thing that is you know, I've been reading up on AI. We're probably going to do a whole talk on whole episode on that in the future, I hope. But I, I've been reading all this uh, research on LLMs. And one of the th- big conclusions that I came to was the fact that the big advance, like I said, was the fact that you can now parallelize a lot more of the, of the neural network math in ways you couldn't do before transformers and LLMs existed. Right, right. Some could argue now, because of that, we can, that, that trend will continue and we'll be able to greatly reduce the cost of training these models. Right? That's, that's, one, that's one thing that's going to happen is LLMs will continue to improve and that's going to reduce the overall cost. You'll be able to make things even more parallelized. And, right? So that will reduce the overall cost as they improve. Some companies, though, will take the benefit of reduced cost to just do a lot more of it. And so they're still going to spend a billion dollars on their training system. They're just going to be able to do so much more with it. And so one of the areas to explore is at what point do gain, do do these models stop scaling? Mm. And I, I certainly have no idea when that is. Or if it's, you know, I don't know if it's soon or way out in the future, but that's going to be an important thing because when they stop scaling, then, then the, the math will shift again. But until, until we get to that, we're in, you know, we have no equilibrium in the market and things are going to be going and moving in lots of different directions. Right. Depending on every, everybody's going to try their own different model. I mean, it'd be nice, it'd be nice to know if, uh, you know, what, what the, what the, amount of knowable information in the world amounted to into parameter size, just so we could say, Hey, we're a third of the way there at a trillion, you know, parameters. We have no idea. Like it's just, it's just a lot of, of indexing that goes into it. And, and, and I'm intrigued too, because, you know, right now, most of these models are indexing um, largely text and what happens when they can index audio and video and all forms of mediums. Um, that's just, again, a whole, a whole nother compute workload, but also a completely different medium, right. In terms of information. And then the one thing that, that, and this just gets back to some, some future when we're in AGI is when training can happen almost instantaneously. And we're so far from compute to doing that. I remember having a conversation with, um, some, some of the chip designers at AMD a few years ago. And we were talking about, you know, training and, and, and what this was, you know, marching toward. And I said, you know, Hey, the, and, and some of these fellows have been in the industry, you know, since IBM early IBM days. And so I had said, you know, in terms of historical compute, right, where we're at with the PC, where are we at with, um, with AI? And they're like, it's like, we're still in the 1980s, like in terms of compute of where we'll be. So like, and when, and when you take that and we, we relatively know, and I agree with you, some of the models themselves, the algorithms will get more efficient. So I don't think this will take 30 years, 
maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think this will take 30 years. But again, we know how much compute's going to be capable in next year, in two years, in, in five years. Like it's a predictable path, certainly going to continue to be large. We've certainly got a decade more of this to get worked out from a compute standpoint. Right. We know what compute is going to increase at. What we don't know is what the software will enable yeah, software. for a given unit of compute, because right. that's what's really advancing here. And and I think, you know, going back to what you said, when are we going to get instantaneous tra uh, training? I, I think what will happen is some things will be trained. We'll get to that pretty soon. Like you could probably train one of these models on everything I've ever written pretty close to instantaneously. <laughs> yeah. But... And, and so some things we'll, we'll very soon be able to train very quickly. But when we get to that point where you can train small things very quickly, people are going to say, well, let's train even bigger and bigger and bigger things. And let's spend a week training so we can understand the universe or whatever. And I, I think that, that's really, I think, the advance that GPT has brought in that whole category of Transformers. It mm. has greatly expanded the scope, the scale of what we are capable of looking at. We're able to look at whole new categories of things in whole new ways that we couldn't do it economically before, or maybe even right. functionally. And like we all know chat GPT, right? Because that's they they trained it on you know written word. But I think there's a whole this I think we've opened up a, a, a AI to all kinds of other massive, massive data sets, things that, you know, I, yeah. I, we can't, some of which I don't think we could have conceived of before. Yeah. And th that's the real excitement here is, is not just the, the chat bot. Cause that, like I sure. said, that's, you know, kind of limited functionality, but there's so many categories of data now that we can start throwing at, at this and looking at things in much, much broader scope. Like the, the one that I always think about is um, oil and oil and gas companies. They're big users of compute after the hyperscalers. They're yeah. probably one of the, second or third biggest users of high-performance compute. Yep. Um, I have to think that they're looking at GPT and going back and like throwing GPT at all their old data sets that they probably haven't looked at in 10 years. They've exhausted their yep. previous set of tools. Now they have this new tool that they can find to, to really, really go into because they have these massive data sets and now they yeah. can look at them in you know, a whole new, whole new way. Yeah. So uh, that, that's, that's what's changed here. Well, and, and and another part about this too, right? I mean, there's the 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 underlying models that allowed unsupervised learning slash unlabeled data to be a part of this equation, which, which makes this easy. Which is why I think it'll make it easier for the companies that you just mentioned to bring their own data to the equation, train these these models on their own data, and then have a mix of open data like GPT and what Google's doing or, you know, some of the stuff Amazon's doing and then be able to index their own data as a part of that as well. So it's kind of mixing those models where, where I don't know how much you've seen. This is literally, I feel like a week old, at least in terms of what I've discovered, the whole auto GPT uh, now conversation where essentially you can deploy a bot to go work with the other bots and query a bunch of different other language models and then return right. to you basically what your goal was. And I was like, that's kind of crazy because now essentially right in parallel, I've got these models working for me. I've got compute now happening, perchance even two, three X more from my one bot that's going in asking and, and trying to get a bunch of queries from other bots at the same time. 
which is why it's really slow. I mean, I've tried a few of these. It is painfully slow. But again, right, just shows the limitations. But that's even weird, you know, that you can just deploy an L- a, 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 a GPT bot to go and talk to other bots and get back what you want. It, you know, it, tons of compute has to be happening was when I thought about that. I was <laughs> like, this has got to take so much compute. <laughs> that's, yeah. Well, I, I saw one today where somebody had figured out, I think it was Chem GPT, I forget the name, where they had given a GPT system the ability to control a, chemi- a chemistry lab to start mm. finding new chemical compounds, mm. which is both like exciting and also terrifying. Yes, yes, exactly. Super scary what we're going to do. So I wanted to hit on, on something on your article because I, this is an interesting point that I think is worth is worth discussing. So several of the categories you mentioned are relatively settled. Like there aren't going to be new entrants coming. And in fact, I, I I really I really appreciated this quote when you talked about the companies that have tried that the valley is littered with the corpses of startups who followed the siren song of market size only to have their backs broken by their only customer who walked away before the funding round closed. <laughs> I thought that was so clever because you hear you hear this, and this is why so many companies just dropped trying to even be a silicon startup, but. In CPU, you've got Ampere. I, I don't know how many companies will 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 come beyond them in CPU. There's nobody coming into GPU. Um, all the all the remaining FPGA companies are were purchased by Intel and AMD. The only one left standing is Lattice. I strongly doubt we're going to see a brand new uh, FPGA company. So that leaves ASICs, accelerators, companion bits. That's sort of the opportunity, if you will, right? And just in this model, right, you looked at your your market was, um, you were saying ASICs networking at 10%. Is that word? Am I reading that right? Yeah. yeah 10%. Roughly where it is today, yeah. So so that's not, it's not trivial, but it's also not gigantic, right? So you could you could essentially have, what, a dozen or more companies fighting for a 10% part of a part of a TAM, which again, not bad, but that's the only place, right? Am I, am I interpreting that correctly? That's kind of the only place that we'll see new entrants really. So, so two, two things. One is I, I do think that heterogeneous compute in general shakes things up and opens doors in possibly unpredictable ways, right? Because if, if you're, if you're a hyperscaler and you're already moving from, 100% Xeon to a whole mix of other things. The idea of now adding in some startup to test out because they have something really promising looks looks more appealing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you are, you know, even even in CPU, which seems pretty staid, if you're a, a if you come up with a CPU that has a particular extension to it, so a few extra cores to go after a particular task really really well. Mm-hmm. Hyperscaler might consider that, or especially if it's you know second or third generation and it's proven. Maybe they'll try that because it saves them two percent on some something expensive. Uh, you, you you can you can do that now because you have the capacity to explore these things and you're not worried about angering Intel and losing your Xeon allocation. It's going to be hard to do that, but if you're a startup, getting you know even a small percentage of that market is 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 doable. If you're you know 
a, a big chip company, I'm not going to name any, but if you're a big chip company, going after that is probably, yeah, they're, they're, no one else is going to try and go after this market. You're not going to go after everybody's there already. So I think that's, yep. that's, I, th- I think we will we will see new entrants go after this, and there is some. It's I think I, I concluded the article by saying it's it's hard. It's not impossible, but it's going to be hard. Sure, expensive too. So I, yeah, right. It's yeah. Pe- some companies will will try, and a few, I think a few more will try. Some of them might actually succeed, and and that's mostly what it is. I I do think there is also the question of China, right? Every semiconductor conversation has to you have to got to mention China. Because there are a dozen companies making CPUs and three dozen companies making GPUs and a hundred companies designing accelerators of different sorts. Um, yeah. Some of those might be good. Like BRAN actually had a pretty good GPU. Uh, you know, it maybe geopolitics makes that impossible. Those companies can't get fabbed anymore. But they're they're out there. And and you know, we we talk about ten customers dominating this market. Three of those are Chinese, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. They're still really, yeah. really big Intel customers, uh, and they're they're all you know explore. They're very aware of what's going on in the world, so they're gonna they're gonna try it out, and they're certainly gonna try right. out domestic domestic sources. So there's there's meaningful market there. It's just it's now complicated by state of the world. Yeah, and 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 a part of the new entrant right point is that there's. There's startups, which, as you point out, is expensive and hard, not not impossible. I mean, there are some really interesting Risk Five startups out there, which we'll, we'll talk about it at, at some point on a whole dedicated episode. But there again, they're they're focusing on accelerators, um, you know, companion compute, not necessarily core compute. But I, but I, I say the entrant point because I think this is an an interesting part of the analysis to speculate where some big hyperscalers might try to go vertical like the examples we've seen today from Graviton and Google's TPU and Microsoft's done nothing, but I have to imagine that at some point in time, Microsoft does something. Um, but to the same point, you, you would say, okay, well, what areas might they explore? It might be less attractive to do CPU. They're certainly not going to do GPU, but they might do a, a companion um, uh, node or, or, or chip to a, to a training module Again, it's it's they have a lot of money, so they've got more, and they control the stack. But I think that's where I think it's interesting to say, well, where where might they insert themselves back again to the kind of initial conversation? Where do they see some of the most pain, underserved opportunities, or the most valuable workloads that they want to save themselves money on? Which again, I think Google, your example of Google's, um, you know, YouTube uh, processor is a good one. It, was, it, it made sense to save them money, optimize the task, and it was a pain. It was an underserved. A underserved solution for them, so that's why I sort of look at like where where might they again? We don't have to come to a conclusion, but I think that's an interesting way to to frame that, which is well, where might some of these companies insert themselves? Because to a degree, if you're a startup and you're like, hey, I'm going to go solve this problem, but then people might go vertical there. Not not that it's don't do it, but it's a risk. Yeah, it's it's a huge risk. I mean, um, all, all these companies are working on their own silicon. Uh, who was it? I think it was, it was, that's right. Intel bought Habana. Yeah. Because Habana had a design win at AWS. Yeah. And the day that AWS publicly announced that they were going to have Habana instances, they also announced Tranium and Inferentia, their own internal chip. Yeah. And so, I mean, that was, you know, thank goodness the, the team at Habana had their exit. Um, 
because that that would have you know that would have ruined them. I mean, that's 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 how that's how these companies break break startups backs, it, stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think. But the, but it, but, the, but it but it's interesting. I was gonna say, but it's interesting though. You mentioned Microsoft. Like, what are they doing? Like, it's been like they've been rumored to be working on something for years now, and never yeah. quite done it. We we all know they're working on something, probably many things, but they haven't quite really pulled the trigger as, for the most part. Uh, and same thing with Facebook. Like, Facebook's doing a lot of things too, but it's not entirely clear how much is their own, yeah. how much they're borrowing from others. Right. I, I wonder if you know. At some point, we're going to reach a limit. We're going to reach a limit to how much homegrown silicon there's going to be. We're still far, far away from that. But, you know, certainly looking back at GCT and video's conference uh, last month, you know, Google and Microsoft were all over that. Like, you know, Google, you'd think can do plenty of AI silicon itself, but they're still really using a lot of NVIDIA. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why and I so go it, back and, to the and, point and, of... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, that's, that's oh, why I go back to the point of what what is their pain and where does it make sense for them to solve a problem and have economic benefit versus just let somebody else do it and part of this equation and this is this is where i've always sort of just really struggled with the whole homegrown silicon part is you got to ask yourself again in, unless your problem is absolutely unique which to some degree i think the your your google youtube example is if unless it's super unique what are you going to do better than nvidia then Intel, then AMD, then name your vendor processor. And, and that's the challenge. Like that's the one where like this conversation's coming up, to be honest with you, I, I, a whole nother subject again for future, but that Samsung's going to start developing their own cores again for, for Galaxy models. Well, what are they going to do better than Qualcomm? Like that's got to be an important part of the answer. It's going to be really hard. And that's, that's where I struggle. But again, there has, Microsoft may have a very unique problem that they're that they say, hey, this is a pain point. Nobody's solving this custom first. That's to some degree. That's why I think FPGAs are interesting. You can actually, as they get more beefy, throw unique compute, program them to do whatever you want. It's a blank slate. But that's the point: is it's got to be a problem that you feel like you have to solve that somebody else isn't going to do better while they try to serve a wider market. That's right. I yeah, I, I agree with that. Except for the FPGA part. <laughs> but what? What's well, yeah. you know? It's yeah. It's 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 it, it, it's interesting. Like, um, there's a real differentiation here. I think I think we have to sort of mark this because what Microsoft, let me be more specific, what Azure and AWS need to need from their silicon is is pretty different from what Google, Facebook, Tencent, Baidu need. Right? Because those those four are mostly running their own workloads, right? Google Google's running its own workloads. Facebook's running its own workloads. Azure, AWS, and Ali Yoon, Ali Cloud, have to run everybody's workloads. And right. They, the only software they really control is their own internal management software, which is a lot. But it's and so it's much easier for Google to make its own silicon because they know exactly what the problems are. It's much harder for Amazon or Microsoft or Azure to, to do this because they're, you know, they have to be all, they have the lowest common denominator problem. And I think that's mm. probably uh, part of the reason that Azure hasn't done anything yet because 
they don't have, you know, they, they don't have a clear picture of it. They don't maybe don't have a quite a, a cute need as, as Google does with YouTube and VCUs. Mm. So that's a good point. So in that scenario, I guess I could look at this two ways. Um, one, you're, you're sort of hinting at, and I don't think either of us know this, but you're, you're hinting at that Amazon's custom silicon probably is a small percentage of their customers' workloads compared to other instances that are, that are generic. I would assume that's probably true, but, but that's part of the assumption. Two, if that's the case, then, and, and Microsoft either knows that, or th then essentially Microsoft has basically said, we, we don't see a unique problem yet for a, a, a specific piece of silicon that, that solves a problem. Because part of Amazon's were also designed to save money, right? They were trying to bring an economic approach that wasn't expensive as a, as a Xeon instance or others, similar to training, although I think that's a bit more, a bit more difficult. Um, you know, Microsoft may just not see that need where economics aren't there or speed isn't as necessary yet. And so I agree with you. They're working on something, but all, the way that you an analyze this, at least the way we're thinking of it, there may just not be a clear value proposition to to fund that investment. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You just don't have the gains. I, I mean, I've I've done the math on this. I, I wrote a post a few years ago looking at the math of developing your own silicon. And if your only goal is to save money to capture... Intel and AMD's margin, it's actually not worth doing mm. from a pure number standpoint. It's break even at mm. best, right? So if you're going to de develop your own silicon, you have to have a chip that's going to convey some form of strategic advantage and yep. bring benefits in other other forms. And, and Apple is the canonical example here, right? Sure. They have their own chips yeah. because it makes their phones and their computers better, and that generates billions and billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars of extra revenue. So yeah, let's throw a yeah. billion dollars at silicon. Yep. That that does that Agreed. math doesn't work out for Amazon just saving, you know, right. margin. Right. Right. So. But at the same time, right, I think it doesn't preclude the future, you know, like you brought up, right? What what changes in six months around these AI platforms may again, right? they they may identify a hole that somebody's not solving that's unique to their specific platform pain points, you know, maybe not. But but I agree, I agree with you. Um let me just add one more thing. The, the, other, the, the one other category of strategic benefit that comes from designing your own silicon is that it lets you control the roadmap. Right? Right. Because this is a big issue inside the, the, the big chip companies is the extent to which you let your customers d design the next chip. And you, you have to sort of, you know, not play them off against the other, but sort of weigh them and, you know, make trade-offs on your design decisions. If I'm if I'm Amazon and I'm not getting being able to control the roadmap, I don't like what Intel or AMD is giving me. I'm going to yeah. go design my own chip because I get exactly what I need. I get to control the roadmap. Right. And I think 20 years ago, all these big companies could have designed their own chips. They chose not to because there were 2,000 semiconductor companies in the world in the in the country, and they could play them off against each other and control the roadmap. That's you know somebody else's company. Industry consolidated, there are now only 200 chip companies. It's much harder for even the biggest companies to have direct control over that roadmap of their, of their vendors, so they internalized it. That, that also leads to the potential for new entrants to come in to give, you know, there, there is some room for maneuver there where, where some companies will say, ah, I could do it myself or I could go to the startup. Right. Like there, there'll, be right. Some, there'll be some moving parts in that. Right. 
Well, and I liked your, I liked your point too about just at at some point in time, this this custom approach just meet, meets its end. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a limitation in terms of um, you just you know you, obviously you can't do every part. That's that's absolutely right. true. But but I think you're right in the value equation. Um, so so real quick, just because maybe this gets me thinking about a future episode where we have a debate. Lay with lay on me why you disagree with the FPGA point. I I feel like for me, I, people get somewhat. Um, now let me let me phrase it a different way. The decision to use an FPGA is just comes down to math, right? It's it's more expensive per unit of compute mm-hmm. than an than a than a CPU or a GPU, and certainly more than an ASIC. And so for small volumes, it makes sense to use FPGA. Once you get to a certain size of deployment, the math tends to favor general purpose compute ASIC. And you you can, like, companies will sort of push that border back and forth, but they're not going to extend it orders of magnitude. And so there's always going to be use for FPGA. But at some point, once you get to, you know, whatever the number is, a million units, 10 million units, you're, you're going to want to go back to mm. something more, more special purpose. And so I, you know, FPGAs are awesome. They're incredibly important. There's a growing number of places we can use them, but I, I, I think that the, the volume math is always going to determine the extent to which we use them. Sure. Right. And, and I think again, right. The, 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 the part that intrigues me and it, it, and it, may, it may be worth discussing this too at some point is, is how they're, essentially Blake slates, but that could be dedicated to something specific purpose, like a security protocol, right? You could just have it, have it handle your security, or it could be helping you handle power management or, or something that that's a little bit heavier in terms of how GPU talks to CPU or, 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 or whatever. Um, but again, they're not capable of tremendous compute, at least not yet. Like the, some of the mid range stuff is there, but obviously you know, we don't necessarily know AMD or, or Intel's full roadmap for their FPGA stuff, um, but it seems like they're leveraging that technology for more than, or, or not focusing it as much on some of the data center points that we're making, even though Xilinx was and Altera was previously. It seems like they might have shifted that, at least Intel and AMD, in a little bit of a different direction um, from a pure FPGA standpoint in data center. Yeah, I mean, I think it's too soon to tell with AMD Xilinx what's going to happen there. Um, you know, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that they have a mm. good good plan, but it's too, too soon to tell. Intel, I think, we is hope. just yeah, we hope. I think in, Intel has just um, what's the polite word for it? Miss miss uh, underutilized the potential of Altera. That was polite. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, right, that was. Um, they they could have done a lot more with it, and I I just don't think they've they've yeah. managed to do that. Yes, agreed. Okay, well, good. Lots uh, as always, lots of ideas for future <laughs> future topics as well. Um, so thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, we will talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.